We tend to think about the grid in ways borrowed from the physics of water pipes that hold, transport, and deliver drinking water, or those of natural gas fuel lines that bring methane to stovetops and hot water heaters. This is not, in the least, how electricity works. The lines are not hollow with electricity inside them. They are solid through and through. Nor does electricity flow, trickle, or drip. It is not a liquid or a gas subject to the laws of fluid dynamics. It's a force. We make it, which is already pretty awesome, by breaking electrons free from their atoms at the power plant and then allowing these to bump into their next nearest atomic neighbor, dislodging their electrons and allowing these to bump along to the next. Some metals at the atomic level make this process of dislodging electrons from atoms easy. And these are the metals we use to build conductors, power lines. The lines, in turn, play material host to this atomic domino effect that moves at roughly the speed of light. Though this tumble of electrons is the fastest thing in our known world, actual atomic drift is only about five hundredths inches per second, or roughly the speed of cold honey. To human eyes, all this action at the atomic level looks like static metal, but this is the falsest of views. The electricity we make and use every day is effectively inseparable from the wires of the grid, and yet the product chains we've designed to make and make money off of electricity ignore the way in which electricity and its infrastructure are different from all other kinds of products. This has become even more the case since legislation passed in the early 1990s effectively made electrons and, say, bananas identical objects from the market's point of view. Never mind that electricity has so little in common with a banana that the two might as well have originated in different physical universes. We now treat and trade them in an almost identical way. Greetings, programs. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Wednesday, November 30th, and today we'll consider the grid, and we'll do so with cultural anthropologist and author Gretchen Bakke. Baki holds a PhD from the University of Chicago in cultural anthropology. She's done research on several failing nations, including the Soviet Union, the former Yugoslavia, and Cuba. She is a former fellow of Wesleyan University's Science and Society program and currently an assistant professor of anthropology at McGill University. Born in Portland, Baki lives in Montreal and calls Washington, D.C. home when she's in the United States. Her forthcoming book, Anthropology of the Arts, is set to arrive on December 29th, while her most recent book, The Grid, The Fraying Wires Between Americans and Our Energy Future, a very highly acclaimed work, was published by Bloomsbury USA last July. America's electrical grid, an engineering triumph of the 20th century, is turning out to be a poor fit for the present. It's not just that the grid has grown old and is now in dire need of basic repair. Today, as we invest great hope in new energy sources, solar, wind, and other alternatives, the grid is what stands most firmly in the way of a brighter energy future. If we hope to realize this future, we need to reimagine the grid according to 21st century values. It's a project which forces visionaries to work with bureaucrats, legislators with storm-flattened communities, money men with hippies, and the left with the right. And though it might not be obvious, 
This revolution is already well underway. The grid tells entertainingly, perceptively, the story of what has been called the largest machine in the world. Its fascinating history, its problematic present, and its potential role in a brighter, cleaner future. More information about Dr. Baki and her work can be found on her website, bakiconsolidated.org. It's an honor to be hosting her today. How are you doing, Gretchen? I'm well. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So I want to thank you because your book actually, I don't think I understood electricity at all before I read it because I think I did think of it in terms of of uh, flow, not so much. There's just this idea that it behaves like water for some reason. <laughs> I think it's a relic. We didn't know what electricity was really or how it worked until well after we knew how to make it um, and use it. So um, the the conversation was happening before the physics was understood. A good, I would say, 30 years popularly and probably 70 years um, scientifically. Um, and so there's just sort of, we used to call them electricity mains, actually, like water mains, the wires, um, before we started calling them conductors, um, sort of understanding the, the process. So it's not, there's no reason for you to, or anyone to have understood how electricity works. I didn't understand it until I started um, working on the book, and I read a lot before I thought, okay, I think I can explain this um, in terms that anybody anybody can get because it's a it's a loan it's 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 the only thing of its type um and so we use all of the tools we have from the rest of our lives to try to make sense out of it so what prompted you to want to study this does it somehow i mean being a cultural anthropologist does this somehow speak to us yeah i think um i think there's two things one is that i saw people after um, there was a big storm in the Pacific Northwest in 2007, um, and that's where I'm from. I'm from a rural town on the Oregon coast. Um, And so it wasn't a storm that got very much press. It wasn't like Katrina um, or Sandy or Irene. It was sort of a quiet quiet storm um, from the sort of public consciousness point of view. But it did, it was kind of like the exclamation point at the end of um, a like a very regular sort of series of blackouts um, that had had been happening for a long time. People were people in that area were quite accustomed to having their power go out two or three times in a winter. Um, but somehow after that storm, there was this feeling of like this is this too much. Like it's too much. It's too often. Um, it's lasting for too long. Uh, and there were actually um, there was one fairly simple fix that did get put in place, but there was a kind of faith that was lost uh, in um, in the inf- infrastructure that made people then curious about how it worked, what it was, um, what was going on. And so I too became curious because I watched this happen through uh, my home community. I was like, okay, so what's what's happening? It's not just that the storms are stronger; or the storms are coming more often. And there's something else happening on the infrastructure side. And as soon as I started looking into that. Um, I discovered that there that the, the this move toward the the mass integration of renewables, which at that point was just barely on the tips of consciousness, um, now is huge, right? I mean, that was whatever 15 years ago, more than that, 2007. No, ten, roughly ten years ago. Yeah. So there, but but since 2008, there's just the the integration of wind power, um, especially, and then now solar is sort of having its moment. Um, 
all of that is, um, it doesn't fit well with the, how the grid was designed um, and grew throughout the 20th century. So the grid was made to work with fossil fuels, um, and fossil fuels are something that we can control how much electricity we make by controlling how much coal, for example, we put into a power plant. Um, and the wind is just not like that, and solar power is just not like that. Um, the wind blows, and the wind turbine spins, and it makes electricity when it's windy. Um, and so so I sort of went from this loss of faith, this sort of popular loss of faith, this desire for a different kind of fuel um, to run a world on to sort of get away from the fossil fuels, um, and then into from there into the technological system and kind of, and how the grid was actually putting the brakes on um, the energy transition. And that, to me, seemed to be the crux of the matter. Well, I guess the misconception that I went into this with is that my my thought was, oh, the, renew the renewables don't work because they're just not efficient enough. But mm -hmm. it, it's, not, it's not so much that. It's that you <laughs> – because – electricity and the grid are inseparable that it you have when someone wants to turn on their toaster the power has to you know so it, there's this strange thing happening where there's no storage it's all it's all happening now that's the thing that was yeah, so <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, no, it's super weird, I think. Like the the I mean that's why the banana analogy matters is that um you you can't put electricity aside. It's not a thing. It's not a material thing. And so you write about like these a wind blow across, you know, the the western United States and you can see it, but they have to have a need to use that power in that moment or else right. it just breaks the grid, which was designed for a real stable uh, dense fossil fuel that you can actually control the amount of. Right. Control and plan for. Um, yeah, so the, um, I think the thing um, about electricity that is really surprising, I get is this, um, the fact that it has to be balanced. So what we use, what we make in any given moment is what we use in any given moment. And, fo and um, fossil fuels are great because we can control that. Nuclear, too. Um, we can control how much we're making. And we've, we've long been able to sort of more or less predict how much people will use as a mass. Um, the thing about renewables, and this, is, this speaks to your surprise as well, is that we can actually make more electricity than we can use with the renewables. There's no shortage problem. And in fact, shortage is a fossil fuel problem. So if we want to be worried about shortages, we should stick with fossil fuels. <laughs> That's a, and we got good at worrying. Like the 20th century was like, let's worry about oil. Okay, let's worry about coal. Um, there's still a lot of blackouts in the U.S. that are caused by jammed um, railway lines trying to move coal to coal-fired coal power plants. Um, so that's the shortage. The shortage thinking has to do with this very dense materiality. Um, and, and you get arguments over pipelines, for example, right? Because we need to be able to move that thing to the place where we're going to use it. Um, solar power, um, wind power, they have this other issue, which is it, it, it does happen that there's cloud cover for a period of time, and so then there's a lack, right? But often the problem is, is that there's just way too much. Um, and the more we install, um, because uh, companies that want to make 
money off of selling wind power, for example, or people who want to produce their own electricity um, for whatever reason, sometimes to make money, sometimes because they think it's a good thing, they're not paying attention to the grid. Um, and so, um, you know, we have the capacity to, um, and in some places actually are, making more electricity than the system can absorb. Um, because, and that's one of the reasons the grid is so big, is that, um, I mean, I talk about this in the book, but the, the wind power made in the Columbia River Gorge, um, it, it powers Los Angeles County. Uh, so because of this, and it takes, you know, less than a minute for that electricity that's produced to go into L.A., to go into people's lights and air conditioners in L.A. Um, but sometimes there's so much wind that even L.A. can't absorb it all. So you can't absorb it in Idaho, um, you can't absorb it in Idaho, Washington, and Oregon, or even um, in down in Southern California. And so that's a new kind of problem, um, that renewables are sort of, we can't control them. Um, we can predict to a certain extent how fast or hard the wind will, will be blowing, but we're really bad at predicting little tiny puffy white clouds. So you get you get Phoenix, Arizona, with solar power panels on everything, you know, and this little puffy white cloud floats by, and every panel that it covers for even a fraction of a minute, um, the output of those panels drops down radically. So it's this randomness. It's the randomness, not the renewableness of the of things like wind and solar. That's a problem. And then in the book, the the interruptions, although they're so they're such a treat for someone personally so i remember the western blackout i think of 1996 and i don't know if it was just a local thing or if it was a entire regional thing and i seem to remember that maybe it was a regional thing it's regional it yeah. was such a treat to be without that power for i want to say it was like four or five hours maybe longer mm -hmm. but but from a business standpoint you can actually you you mentioned in the book that uh, there was a blackout that you can actually see the effects on GDP that year that this many billions of dollars were lost from the economy because you know, or like productivity all work stops. Yeah, all work stops, and it's true that it does feel these the shorter blackouts, sort of under 24-hour blackouts, unless you're stuck in an elevator somewhere or you have to walk 20 miles to get home. They are, there's sort of a conviviality to them. Um, the problem is when it's longer, um, and that's where people start to get really irritated um, and, um, and scared, actually. And so the, super, the thing about Sandy was that there were, people were out of power for a week, and then it wasn't fun anymore. Um, some people were out of power for three weeks. In Louisiana, the most recent floods, and then also after Katrina, like everybody um, had to put their refrigerator, like the refrigerators rotted because there's all of this food. You can't eat it all. And the refrigerators just rot, and they, out they go onto the streets. So the streets are just lined with these rotten refrigerators. And you see the infrastructure and how it holds, the, the electrical infrastructure actually holds these appliances in place and sort of keeps them viable. And you pull the electricity out of that, and the appliance is just um, just an old hunk of rotten, like stinky metal, you know. So there's a the the electricity. We we never interact with electricity. It's our machines interact with it. Um, 
And so the fun of having those machines go off for a little while is great, you know. But then after a certain point, it's not great anymore. And that's, that was one of the things that happened in the storm um, in the Pacific Northwest as well, is that power was out for a week. And so people didn't have any cell phone access. The roads were all shut because there were lines, power lines and trees down on the roads, so they couldn't get in and out um, of these very isolated rural communities. Um, and, and it was just immiserating. Um, and any time um, I talk to anybody anywhere in the U.S. that's gone through one of these long ones, uh, I was talking to some kids in Arkansas actually recently, and they'd had an ice storm and everyone remembered it. And it becomes this like, where is safe? Where is warm? Where is their food? Um, kind of freak out. Uh, and there is a whole level of grid reform that's happening um, that is in a reaction to outages of that sort. Um, and then the U.S. military, of course, which is um, making their bases into uh, their domestic bases into microgrids because they can't even deal with a five-minute power outage. Like they need to have access to their information all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so a squirrel chews through something, you know, and like blacks out a part of the state, which happens. I think in Portland, it happened three times in three weeks um, a couple of years ago. Like it's just all there's all this wildlife and plants, and you don't even have to get to the terrorist level of things. Um, for this, this kind of this sort of, I think for Americans, fairly comfortable, constant disruption, short-term disruption of electrical supply. But, you know, in Japan, they would never go for that. And in South Korea, like, never. They would never go for that. Italy, you know, much more stable grid than what we have. Um, it's just what we've gotten, you know, we're just accustomed to it because it's the, it's the one we live with. Um, even living in Quebec, where I am now, like, the power never goes out. Um, very, very, very rarely. Well, so you call the grid like the world's biggest machine, and mm-hmm. and I mentioned that you can't separate electricity from the grid. So, I mean, these two things are intimately tied. But then when Donald Trump says stuff about upgrading infrastructure, do you think he's talking about the grid, or is that on anyone's mind at all? Is infrastructure bridges and roads? Um, I think so. I think when he and also Hillary Clinton were speaking about um, upgrading infrastructure, they largely meant um, this other kind of infrastructure. So yeah, bridges and roads. Um, but it does. Um, anytime there's money earmarked for infrastructure, um, the grid people get in on that money too. So it doesn't. The person in charge of thinking about where it's going to go, they would have to de-specify. Um, electrical infrastructure, which I don't think is going to happen. Um, it's understood that uh, this is a part of, you know, if we want to go to making America great again, like it's a part of America that everybody have access to a stable, um, affordable, um, sort of standardized uh, electric current. Um, and even the conversation now about getting, um, making sure that everybody has access to the Internet, it's quite similar to what was happening in the 1930s um, during the Depression about getting, making sure that everybody had access to electricity. So there's this sense of national uplift um, that's being linked now to the Internet, which is, right, electricity. It's also electricity. That all The information economy is, is an electric economy. Um, so I... I suspect that money earmarked for infrastructure from any government point of view will, in fact, um, also help the grid. Um, nobody knows what's going to happen, right? <laughs> That's the great thing about Donald Trump. It's a giant mystery. <laughs> but 
Um, both, it's the one thing that both he and Clinton actually spoke of in positive terms. And um, I've been surprised in my conversations over the last three weeks um, with conservative politicians um, that they support um, solar, especially um, solar, especially, and that that um, you know, the more solar you get onto the grid, the more of it leads to a panic on the part of the utilities. Um, and so, and then requests for upgrades of money. So there's sort of a, there's a kind of like, if you want this vision of um, a free market for uh, energy um, and something like energy security um, over even a very small field, so like a, a home, for example, um, you still have to deal with the grid uh, to make that happen. And part of the reason I wrote the book was to get people to see that, to see that fact. That it's not just about the fuels. It's not just about how we make power. Um, and it's not just about how we use power. That's the 1970s ideas. Like, we can conserve, we can wear sweaters, like, you know, we can change the world. That's part of it. But it's about when. It's about when we use power and when power is made and where we make electricity, where we use it. Um, those things actually really matter because the infrastructure is, as you pointed out, very um, the, the electricity and the infrastructure are not separable. Right. You and can't so, just open a tap and pour electricity <laughs> in a cup. <laughs> can't do it. <laughs> no, but that was what was so fascinating. It's like so the early the, so you, the grid is a 20th century relic in some respects. So we have all this 21st century technology that we're trying to uh, incorporate into this thing that was designed with a much different technological underpinning but so the interesting thing when i'm reading about this is you know the the problem of power companies trying to figure out how to you know what do we do with this at night if we're generating you know there's the, there just isn't a need and so it's almost like designing products to sell so that they can make money selling electricity when people aren't using it mm-hmm. like a refrigerator like the refrigerator mm-hmm Anything that uses electricity 24 hours a day is a marketing win from the utility's point of view. But that sort of stops being true now. Like, because if you have solar panel and you want to run on solar, um, and I should say, like, people who have solar panels now, they don't, they, they don't run their house on solar. They make solar power. They're just a little power plant. So they're making power, they're making electricity, and they're shipping it out onto the grid, and then they're buying electricity from the grid and using that electricity from the grid. Um, so even though the numbers zero out, it's not solar power that they're actually using. Um, so if you wanted to make a, a house that used solar power, like the there's, there's some technological tricks <laughs> that need to be overcome because the sun goes down. Right. Right. Um, at night. So that's the, it's like our highest energy use is right when the sun, um, it becomes less strong. Um, even in the summer, it starts to be less strong by, by five and certainly in the winter by three. Um, so it's no longer maybe just taking into account how, how electricity is made when it's used um, how to balance one particular form of generating electricity like solar power with another form of generating electricity like hydro, for example. Um, all of those things matter regardless of the size of the grid that you're dealing with. So I kind the, of got off track from your question. But, I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> but so the interesting... refrigerator is a problem in that system. Like refrigerator is a problem. Well, the whole evolution of all of this is so fascinating to me because – 
you know, from my limited uh, knowledge, I was thinking, okay, electricity begins in 1882, and basically power as we know it is kind of imagined right there and then spreads forth. Or mm-hmm. I guess I had two competing ideas. There was uh, Edison and Tesla, and there's alternating current and direct current, and and I didn't really understand the difference. But um, what's fascinating is that there really – it just – I guess the 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 question is, you know, what does the grid speak toward regarding like social structures? Where that was the interesting thing in your book, I learned that Edison was was selling both, you know, m- more municipal sized grids, but also like personal individual home grids. And so this was kind of like a rich person's thing that you would, and the grid was conceived of mainly as light. Yeah. So it wasn't. It didn't become something you could use for power for a while, um, and light was what was needed then. I guess to go back even one more step, it's it's we knew how to make electricity, but nobody could figure out what to do with it. That was like the problem of the late 1800s, and so looking around at like what are the world's what are the issues with the world right now? Well, it's dark. <laughs> you know, like this is a big issue. It's it's dark gas lamps. They make your eyes super itchy, so you can't work for a long time. You can't keep a clerk in an office. If you look at old skyscrapers, like they're designed so that there's um, the corner office. The reason that that's a valuable space is because it has light from two sides. So that guy who's in that corner office, he can work more. His eyes don't get as tired as the person who's even just on the side office who has one window, or the clerk. You know, who's usually a, a door somehow, and, and then there's a light well in the center, which we now use for elevators, um, but there were originally light wells in the centers of these buildings so that there would be a little bit of light um, getting into where the clerks were working. And so light, I mean, it was clear that people with money or people planning to make money, and was still capitalist America even then, needed light. Um, so that was sort of where the project started. Like, how do we get light? How do we get light onto city streets? How do we get light into newspapers? How do we get light to lawyers? How do we get light to Wall Street? Um, and then there's a funny thing with the, with Edison's um, first grid, which was not our first grid. It was the first dim dim grid. And this is something I learned, too, is that well before Edison managed to mass market this light bulb, which was not necessarily his invention at all, um, but he figured out how to mass market it. There were grids everywhere, but there were these very bright arc light grids, quite small and extremely bright um, in factories, um, on city streets, um, just they, they were around. So he was competing with an existing system for making electric light. Um, and he, what he did is he made these very dim bulbs, but he put a lot, instead of having like six insanely bright bulbs, he put, uh, you know, 8,000 very, very dim bulbs. Um, so his invention, his sort of miracle was a different kind of circuitry. It wasn't a different kind of bulb necessarily, or that he like invented um, electricity. People like to say that, that it's an invented electricity. Um, and then that system that he, he that he came up with had some shortcomings, mostly that you had to build a new power plant for every square mile you were going to power with it. And then the, the famous Tesla-Edison argument 
um, and sort of backstabbing and, and poor business practices and all of that stuff that has become like that's the sexy story, right? Like there's another movie that's coming out um, next year uh, with Benedict Cumberbatch playing one of the two of them. Or I think that's right. I don't remember. But anyway, but, you know, it's, it, people love this this competition yeah. between these two guys. Um, and Tesla has an AC has an AC system, and the great thing about AC alternating current is that you it travels, so you can send it very far. Um, and what's weird is that these private plants, these little house-sized grids, which which people really wanted in Edison's day, we kind of want them again now. Yeah. Um, and so suddenly DC is coming back into popularity because it's extremely good for small systems. Um, it's not good if you want to build the world's largest machine. Then you need you need an electric current that can travel. But if you don't care if your electric current is going anywhere, if you want to make it in the basement and use it in your house, um, a DC system is perfectly fine. That issue is that all our machines work on AC power. So, <laughs> like, we would have to we'd have to have a new toaster and a new refrigerator and a new oven and a new like all that. And that you know that might happen. I, I, it's hard to know technologically, but there's but you see the same desire in eighteen. 1885 that you see in 2015 and that's that's kind of I mean as an anthropologist I find that kind of shocking um, there isn't much the same uh, in our in our world now in our American world now as there was then but um, that desire it's it's the same of course the the way you describe that the, it seemed pretty miserable for his you know, with the the coal smoke and and all the wires and everything, it just seemed like, oh my gosh, that is like the the idea of the individual over the collective, just like you know, too much. The pendulum too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. And the and the other thing um, I have to say though is that his little like piles of coal, like the reason we have power plants, we've moved them. Um, first into poor neighborhoods and then out of cities entirely is because people just don't like, once they got bigger, people just didn't want that kind of pollution around them. There was a pop, again, like a popular push to move these machines out of town. Um, but then what gets lost with that is that um, when you have a power plant in an, in a densely populated area, um, Edison also built in steam conduits. So the excess heat that he, he was he used coal to boil water and water to turn a turbine, um, which then turned a generator, which then produced electricity. But there's all that steam that's the, that's being produced in the first stage. That ran through um, basically steam pipes underground and was used for municipal heating. Um, and now we just vent that heat into the air. So there was, on the one hand, uh, an immense amount of pollution. It was dirty. The 1880s were dirty. <laughs> it was a dirty time. <laughs> with horses also um, producing a lot of dirt uh, and crap everywhere, yeah. um, but the but the other on the other side of it, it was actually there was a kind of um, sort of care taken um, with all of the things that can be generated by this one machine. Um, so excess heat was um, was one of the things that was you know very useful, and in places now that have these microgrids. Um, like the University of, uh, of California, San Diego, they have a microgrid, and they have they've installed the same thing. So they're making electricity. Um, they have a natural gas um, fired plant on the campus of the university, and they're making electricity for themselves. Um, and then all the excess heat they're running through these steam ducts, and they're heating the campus and the dorms with it. So that comes back um, as well too. And that's smart. 
it's a smart thing to do. If you can make power more cleanly, um, sort of, it's like using all the parts of the pig, you know. <laughs> in the 1880s, that was a standard thing. You'd use everything of an animal you killed. Um, and then, you know, it became much more standard um, with the 20th century to throw out a lot of stuff, to use what you want and throw out what you don't want. Um, and the same thing happened with um, with power. Hmm. Well, I guess I didn't have an, an understanding of the extent of coal power plants because I grew up in the West and would just have so many dammable rivers creating relatively inexpensive constant power yeah and it's it's the um, i also grew up in the west so um, i come from a hydro a drenched world i guess you could say <laughs> that was also hydro power run but in places um where you don't have that uh you get um that's where you start to see coal um you see natural gas replacing coal you see a lot of nuclear um because that's what um that's you know, in order to make electricity available to all the people in America, there had to be a kind of cookie-cutter um, means of doing that. Um, and you can't transport a hydro... You can only put a hydroelectric dam where you've got the right kind of river. Another name that I learned from your book is Charles Insull, and he seems like he would be the actual name. That, first, mm-hmm. I, I forget the details, but it, I... I, I seem to remember that he was actually the one who made it all happen in some level. Yeah, Samuel Insull. So Sam. he's the guy who figured out. Yeah, he's the guy who figured out how to make money off of electricity. And I think that that's um, something that surprised me in the process of doing the research. Um, is that it was? It's always been about money. Um, the whole from from Edison's first grid, um, first DC grid to. Um, the present, you know, people also often malign the like, oh, these things are happening because somebody wants to make money. Well, the shape of our electrical infrastructure is because people wanted to make money. Um, they And it is not easy to make money off electricity. It's a very, very unwieldy project. It's easier to make money off of flowers, you know, <laughs> which go bad, but they don't go, they go bad quickly, but you still have a little bit of time to like grow roses and put them in an airplane and fly them to the places where people buy roses. You know, and um, electricity, you don't even have that. You have this unwieldy instantaneousness. Um, it's very hard to count, so it's very hard to figure out how much electricity people are using. That was a giant problem. So how do you charge people if you don't have much, know how much they use? Um, so to meter, now we do have, we have, I mean, it, we take it for granted that they're electricity meters, but that was like a 40-year project to figure out how much, how much money, like how much electricity people were using. It's lethal, so you have to, you have to ha- maintain a, a sort of a specialized um, set of workers that know how to repair the system. Um, and again, in the beginning, people didn't replace their own light bulbs. Um, there, there was a guy who came. It's a beautiful picture, which I cannot find, which is in the archives of um, Southern, Southern California Edison. I worked in their archives for a while. There's just thousands of pictures, and I came across it, didn't write down, like, the whatever the perfect number, and I've never been able to find it again. But it's a man on a bicycle in Los Angeles with this plastic bag full of bulbs, like, much bigger than him and the bicycle because they weigh nothing, biking down the street. And he's he's going around and replacing people's, um, bulbs, and then they would charge, they would as- assume how much electricity a client had used or customer had used based on the how long it had taken for the bulb to burn out. But people didn't do that themselves. There was a guy who came to your house 
I like put your bulb in. <laughs> I think it was when you were talking about Edison's grid kits in a box. You know, where I think mm-hmm. that um, that was that was his gimmick is that like Apple, you had to buy only Edison parts because they only work together. Was that right or was that insult? Yeah, exactly. Like you know, no, that's him. He would only you'd had to buy all the stuff if you wanted his light bulb. You had to buy his whole thing um, because they only work together. And his light bulbs were even though. I mean, so they were like a hundred dollars a piece, in in today's dollars. In today's dollars, I think they were like twenty dollars in today's dollars, but still, a lot. Yeah. And the so yeah so what Insel did is he's the guy who figured out how to make money off of electricity. Um, so he deserves a lot more acclaim, I think, than he gets. And and today. Today, it's sort of newly a problem again because the system that he devised was um, a vertically integrated monopoly, um, which means government-regulated vertically integrated monopoly, which means that the one company would make the electricity, they would plan for how much to make, they would make it, they would transmit it, they would sell often the machines that used it. That's why General Electric, for example, you have GE makes the stuff you know, makes appliances. That was part of it. Um, And then they would bill for how much you used. And all of it was within this one company who then gained a monopoly um, over a particular service area. And that monopoly was protected in law um, through an an arrangement with the federal government to be heavily regulated. So the government, um, in some cases now it's state governments, um, um, sets the price of electricity, um, but in exchange for this, so that the utilities can't price gouge people, in exchange for this, a utility um, had a total control over a service area. And to to this day, um, in most places in the U.S., you cannot choose who you pay your electric bill to, and that's a remnant of that. Um, but that level of control, so control over a market, um, control over a power source, control over the infra- over the the wires, the infrastructure that's moving it, and control over the billing process, um, allowed um, allowed for um, some kind of capacity to deal with the fact that you need to be you need to have people using electricity or businesses using electricity 24 hours a day because that's the big issue with electricity is like how do you have a constant draw on a system for which you have a constant production. Um, And the way you do that is by integrating as many different kinds of customers as possible. So he did that. He figured that out, first of all, which was already, like, kudos to him. It's one of the most amazing things in the whole history of electricity that he figured figured that problem out. Um, And then he built it. Um, Then he also, like, did a lot of sort of sneaky, conniving stuff and lost a lot of money for a lot of people and died in poverty and (laughs) fled to Paris and, you know, things didn't end well for him. Um, But in the end, we got uh, the utility monopoly, um, which then has been slowly breaking down since the 1970s. But so now, and this is where I got the hope from, is that so we're dreaming up ways to store electricity so that we're not we can we can utilize renewables in a much more effective way. Right. Um, because we don't have this monopoly anymore, there needs to be some other mode for making electricity at one time of day and using it at another time of day. Um, and so storage, figuring out a way to store it has been the big challenge. It was a huge challenge in Insul's day too. 
Um, it's just that he came up with a solution that didn't necessitate storage. But as his system breaks down, that we turn our we turn ourselves back towards the idea. Well, if we could only store it, um, and I have to say, like we can't store it. It's it can't be stored. It's like store. It's like putting gravity in a box. Like you just it can't be done. Um, but what we can do is we can start a pro- we can use electricity to start a process that then when it's reversed reproduces roughly the same amount of electricity. So when people talk about electricity storage, this is what they mean. Um, they mean putting electricity into a system. It can be a chemical system like a battery. It can be a physical system like um, like pumped hydro. Um, it can be a heat, uh, some sort of heat storage system like molten salt. But the idea is that the amount of electricity you put in to produce a, mov- a, mo- a motion in the system will be the same or roughly the same when, that, um, when the system is reversed or the motion is reversed. So that's when people talk about storage, that's what they mean. And it's a big, um, it's a big and, exci- and exciting um, thing that's happening right now. Uh, we need it. it. We don't... There are other things that we can do. We can sort of we can sort of take Samuel Insel as a guide and say, okay, we can focus obsessively on storage and only see that, um, or we can like say storage would be great. But while we're working that out, let's see what else we can do, um, and that what else we can do has to do a lot with computing and with balancing renewables um, with um, the ability to turn down. So it's called demand response, but to turn down consumption. So when that little cloud goes over um, a solar panel in Phoenix, you can turn down barely the lighting system in a giant um, building. Nobody will even see that happen. Um, it would be so faint if you spread it over enough. And then that, so it, instead of producing more electricity to match that dip, um, you actually reduce consumption to be aligned with that dip. Um, so that's the computing route. So it's not just People love storage, and there's exciting things happening with storage, but it's not the only way to solve the problem. And so then do you have hope for the future? I do, but I'm, that's just how I'm built. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's a super exciting time, and one of the things that's amazing about, the, about doing research on the grid is that it is we might, not, we might not understand that it is in a state of total revolution, but there are so many Silicon Valley startups that understand that. You know who've been who are working on it. Like this reform, it's in it's in process. Um, and you know, will we manage to convert completely to renewable energy before we lose Florida? That I don't know. Um, I think that one's up for grabs. But even taking the the global warming worry out of the story, um, the transition is happening anyway. Like the, the 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 transition to renewables is happening even without that ideological worry. It might be happening a little bit more slowly, um, but it's it's we're moving in that direction. Um, and coal is not coming back. Like there's just these sort of weird things that have happened. Like okay, coal's not coming back. There it goes you know. Um, nuclear could come back, but the odds are very low. So there's a lot of there's a lot of creativity happening on the ground, and that's a, some of what I wanted to get to at the book was like why we have the problems we have, but also then like so exciting, <laughs> you know, the weird crap people are coming up with to solve those problems. Um, and I get emails every day from people who are like, I figured out a thing, I figured out a thing, I figured out a thing that's going to change the world. We're going to have a dip, we're going to make more electricity than we need, you know. And I don't, I can't judge those things, but I can definitely judge the quantity of excitement. 
Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. My pleasure. It was already all done. <laughs> Very quick, 42 minutes. <laughs> That's how it always feels. You've been listening to yeah. Dr. Gretchen Bucky on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and SyncBook.com. For more information about her books and her work, check out her website, BuckyConsolidated.org, to which we'll link. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access, the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and I kept dreaming of a world I thought I'd never see. Then one day, I got in. Don't speak of your beliefs. There you